Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, or hostess, depending on how you look at it. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong, and we also have some new members coming in. But that means we're up and down the state. We're spread. Um, the only the only glitch with that is, is you know, when people um, think of California. They think of us kind of like Hawaii. You know, we've got beaches, we've got surfing, we got good-looking surfer, you know, the, the whole thing. But it's not all like that. Um, our lower west coast, our, not so much west coast, but like starting like San Francisco level on down, that's where you get a lot of these surfers and stuff. You get them up in Oregon and those places. Not Oregon, but Northern California. But it gets colder. The more you go north, it gets colder. So you don't see as much. But uh, it is true, you know, just the west coast part. The beaches are beautiful. However. There's other spots. There's other things in California. We've got a lot of farmland. We've got a lot of mountains. We've got a lot of desert. So, like I said, you know, there's a lot of rural space out there. And like I said, it may take us a couple days to get out to you, but we will. And if, and if that is the case, we have mediums on staff who can call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on in your building or your house. And sometimes they can calm it down until we get out there. But it's never more than three days that we can't get to you right away. All right. Sometimes we can do it by phone. All right. That being said, if you want to find us, you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Radio. My name. Okay. Uh, you can find us on Instagram under Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. You can find us on, Twi- on Twitter under California Haunts. Remember all these things. You can find us on TikTok under California Haunts. You can find us on Twitch under Cal Haunts. So there's all kinds of places to find us, even on Patreon, the California Hot Paranormal Invitation. We also have a meetup where we announce a lot of our events. And one of those events is we're going to be doing nightly meditations. We're going to be doing, we're starting a new thing. We're going to be doing one at 3 p.m. Pacific for the people that live back east, give them time to come home and get ready to do it. And we also do it at 7.45 in the evening. So that's going to be starting tomorrow. If that sound like something you're interested in, head on over to the California uh, Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team meetup page and sign up. Okay? So, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And that means all month we go four to five days in the week, you know, four to five days a week doing meditations. So it's a nice, like, it's like a little club. I've only got eight spots available over there. So, haul it on over to sign up. Okay. That being said, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, we are going out live tonight on Facebook. And that being said, if you haven't done so already, you like what you see in here tonight, please hit that follow button because we're always looking for followers. Also, uh, if you can give me a thumbs up, show me some love, you know, some hearts and things like that. And uh, do comment in, in, in the chat room because what that does is it puts us up higher in the FYP to where the Facebook computer sees that and they move us out to in front of more people. It works the same way with TikTok. Okay, it works the same way with YouTube. If you're over on YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, 
please do that. We're 300 and I think 315 away from 1,000 subscribers. Real exciting times. Getting closer, you know, inching ever closer to that thousand number. So if you if you like what you hear and see tonight, check that out. Sign up over there. Um, there is over 600, 761 videos in the YouTube right now, and with those videos, um, they get confusing to look at because there's like one big blob of videos. You know, you, you have to do a search and all that. What I've done is I've started categorizing them, so I'm putting them in different folders. Uh, you know, you, if you're into if you're into UFOs, uh oh, Larry was there. He's not there now. If you're into UFOs, then um, you'll find a folder for that. If you're into Nancy Mass, you'll find a folder for that. Hi there. Hi. We lost, we lost. Welcome, welcome to the wonderful world of electronics. Just as we were watching you do your introduction and our computer went down, we scrambled like heck to put up a back backup computer, and voila, here we are. And here we are. It's, it's good to have you back. It's delighted to be. It's a delight to be with you, Charlotte. We're honored and and uh, looking forward to discussing our lifelong research into a phenomenon that is bizarre, frightening, horrific, and utterly fascinating. At least we find it so. Yeah, it is bizarre. I mean, if anything out there scares me, this scares me. You know, you're sitting there mind your own business watching TV, and that's it, right? There goes your arm. <laughs> so tell me how you got into researching this. And when we were in eighth grade, we purchased a cheap paperback book called Stranger Than Science by Frank Edwards. He was a newspaper journalist. And in that book, he had one chapter devoted to what was called at the time the Cinder Woman, Mary Hardy Weezer. And he just he described this fire fatality as being incredibly localized, quite mysterious, in which the lady burned herself up in a chair along with her body and a side table and left behind at the conclusion of the fire one foot a few pieces of calcined vertebrae, and what was said at the time to be a shrunken head. A 170-pound woman had been reduced to a few pounds of ash and rubble, basically. We thought, could that possibly happen? And right. um, as we went through, went through high school and college, we talked to our teachers, our professors, and nobody had ever heard about this. So after we left the engineering profession in the early 70s, we went down to the Library of Congress, pulled up some rolls of microfilm for newspapers, um, from back in the day to see if the local press in St. Petersburg, Florida had reported this story as fact or, or mm -hmm. Frank Edwards had, had made up the story to sell a mm -hmm. couple paperback books. And what we discovered was that in the summer of 1951 in St. Petersburg, Florida, Mrs. Reeser not only had died in the way that uh, Frank Edwards had described, but mm -hmm. had done so to the absolute befuddlement and mystery of all the local investigators, the fire chiefs, the police department, uh, the local morticians, the coroners, everybody seemed to be completely bumfuddled by how a woman could burn herself so thoroughly, so completely in an isolated environment where surrounding combustibles in her apartment, um, stacks of newspaper, bed linen, and so on, mm -hmm. did not suffer the anticipated severe burn and charring that uh, everyone thought had to be present in order to consume right. a body to this extent. Right, right, right. You know, I had heard um, um, that. that well, we got a victory. we got a feedback issue. Um, um, did you shoot your speaker down a little bit over there? Testing one, two, three. Yeah, because I can hear an echo on me. Let me see here. Do I have this switched off? Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. 
I say, it looks like the electrons at both our ends are having a field day with themselves tonight. It's one of those days. Yeah. I'll just keep my question short. I had heard that, and I know it's all speculation, you know, about what causes this, but I had, I had read somewhere that sometimes alcohol might be a factor of this, and also, and also a coffee creamer, like, the, you know, like, 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 like coffee, like coffee. Haven't haven't seen or heard anything about coffee mate being a causative mechanism. Alcohol, however, has a long history. Mm -hmm. um, back in the 17 and early 1800s, when, when the subject of SHC, spontaneous human combustion, as we prefer to call it, sudden human cremation, was fiercely mm -hmm. and hotly debated, um, alcohol was deemed to be a requirement, along with being a female and being elderly uh, and sedentary. Alcoholism played a role because spirituous liquors back in those days, you could ignite it and, and sustain combustion. Mm -hmm. uh, however, in 1850, Baron von Liebig, a famous chemist in his day, decided to do an experiment. He took alcohol sodded tissue and tried to burn it to the extent that uh, it would become powder, powdery ash. He failed and therefore concluded that um, because his experiment could not replicate uh, something that looked like Mrs. Reeser's body in 1951, or several other cases that happened back in his day in the mm -hmm. late 1700s, early 1800s, that alcohol was not a mechanism by which SHC could be explained and therefore the phenomenon itself did not occur. Hmm. We've done similar experiments ourselves. We took ham shanks, soaked it in a marinade of brandy, alcohol and vodka for a year and then tried to ignite it. It would not sustain combustion after about an hour, the small exterior flame on the meat sample self-extinguished and we had 99% of the meat sample still intact. Hmm. So alcohol may be a factor in that it seems to, in some cases, be able to dissociate the water molecule, which we think is important in looking at these cases of SHC, but it is certainly not a prerequisite because we have in our database of some 500 examples of spontaneous combustion now, teetotalers, people who have abstained from drinking, who are not smokers, do not carry a pipe or lit matches in their pockets, um, how, how, how frequent is it now? Because you used to hear about, like you say, the Reaser case. I remember reading that one, and there's like little snippets here and there on the internet. But how, how frequent does it happen now? This is an extraordinarily rare phenomenon, blessed to be. Um, one probably has a better chance of being struck multiple times by lightning, as did Roy Sullivan, than becoming a single case of spontaneous human combustion. Uh, that said, doesn't mean that it's impossible. The research case is what got us interested in the subject. And then in 1975, we got tipped off to a case that sounded like Mrs. Reeser that happened here in our home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, the victim in question was Dr. John Irving Bentley. We started making phone calls to the person who first discovered the alleged SHC of Dr. Bentley. Mm -hmm. Spoke to the deputy coroner, the coroner, uh, the undertaker, Richard Lindholm, um, several of the firemen involved. And then we got the photographs of Dr. Bentley. And when we got that photograph, if you don't have it, we'll hold this up. There you can there see this is Dr. Bentley. Wow. His scene of incineration in his bathroom in 1966 in Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, which is northern Pennsylvania. Dr. Bentley became, in our view, the poster child for what history has called spontaneous human combustion. And as we said, in the classic cases like his, what we prefer to rename as sudden human cremation. Uh -huh. 
Dr. Bentley on the evening of December 4, 1966 was apparently in fine health. He was semi-invalidic. He used an aluminum walker to locomote through his two-room apartment, um, but mentally acute, astute, um, liked to argue with the local town's folks who visited him every day to look and make sure that he was in good health and good spirits. The following morning, December 5, a Monday morning, Don Garsnell was a meter reader for the local gas company, walked into Dr. Bentley's home to read the gas meter in the basement. En route to the basement, Don Garsnell noticed that there was an odd wispy smoke in the hallway and a, an aroma that he couldn't distinguish, but noticed it tasted sweet. Hmm. Mr. Gosnell went down to the basement with Dr. Get Bentley's gas meter there. And as he turned around to go back upstairs, his flashlight hit a pile of something on the earthen floor. Being curious, Mr. Gosnell walked over and looked at what turned out to be a pile of ash on the earthen floor, about 14, 15 inches in diameter and about five inches in height. He kicked it with, a, with his work boot, being a volunteer fireman. He wondered what had burned to create this little pile of ash. Mm -hmm. Looked overhead and saw above the pile of ash in the basement ceiling was a hole about two and a half feet in diameter. And three of the oak beams that supported that floor had burned partially through, one almost completely through. On the perimeter of the hole, he noticed that there were a few cherry red embers still on the perimeter of that hole. And being a volunteer fireman, he wondered why he and his fellow firefighters had not gotten a call overnight to come to Bentley's home and put out a fire. Mm -hmm. At that point, he went back upstairs and made sure that Dr. Bentley was in good health that morning, knocked on, on the good doctor's door, got no response, stuck his head inside the doorway and around the corner and looked in the bathroom and saw uh, what he thought at first was a mannequin leg on the bathroom floor. Mm -hmm. When Mr. Gosnell stooped to take a closer look, he realized, oh my God, this isn't a mannequin. This is a human leg. And what I just kicked in the basement had to be the ashes of Dr. Bentley himself. Hmm. Ran out of the house down the, down the street in Countersport into his work office and yelled the understatement of 1966, Dr. Bentley's burned up. Indeed, Dr. Bentley had, but in a way that made no sense to the local firefighters, and to this day makes no sense to any fire official to whom we have showed this photograph and discussed the details of the scene. The fire obviously was intensely localized, confined almost wholly to Dr. Bentley's body itself, leaving behind one half of one leg, his legacy to the world, a patella, a kneecap bone in the basement, and his head lying on some water pipes below the, the floor in the bathroom. Everything else had burned to powder. One of our naysayers of SHC, uh, Mark Benecki, a renowned forensic biologist, says that there were no cases known to medical science in which internal organs are burned more completely than the external parts of a body. Ergo, SHC cannot happen. Well, uh -huh. using that criteria, Dr. Bentley puts the lie to that criteria because he left behind no internal organs whatsoever. We stood at that scene where that photograph was taken. Uh, we're six feet in height. With our outstretched arm, we can touch the ceiling above the hole through which Dr. Bentley immolated. Not a scorch mark on the ceiling. The bathtub was painted with enamel paint. The paint directly above the hole through which Dr. Bentley's body burned did not blister. Dr. Bentley's aluminum walker should have melted at 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. It is mm -hmm. clearly intact. So what kind of a fire, what kind of an energy, what kind of a phenomenon are we looking at here that can incinerate a body more thoroughly can, than can be done in a crematorium retort mm -hmm. and yet not blister paint or melt aluminum or scorch a ceiling um, 
inches away from the fire that consumed the, the human being. That's the big mystery that uh, we spent most of our life now, more than 40 years, mm -hmm. trying to investigate and document and explain. Well, you know, um, I've had time to hang out at mortuaries, and I've seen bodies that have been cremated. And it takes a while. It's not instantaneous thing. I mean, but this, but what we're talking about was spontaneous. It's actually spontaneous. I mean, it just happens and that's it. So it's, it's, it's petrifying. Yeah, it is. Um, you bring up cremation, and it's it's good to know the contrast between what fire science technology can achieve in a retort versus what we're looking at in cases like Dr. Bentley and Mrs. Reeser and scores of other cases that we've identified and documented. A crematorium retort normally operates at 22, 2400 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 to 90 minutes. And then the retort temperature is lowered to 17, 1800 degrees for another hour to an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. The most difficult cadavers to burn up in a crematorium are the ones that are overweight, crematorium operators tell us. Um, so that raises the problem. Um, many deniers, naysayers of SHC say that these people burn up on their own body fat. The wick effect is what they call it. Where the body becomes an inverted candle, the clothing of the victim becomes the wick. And over a long period of time, many, many hours at low temperature, the body supposedly slowly burns itself to dust and powder. Mm -hmm. If that were the case, every crematorium owner that we have spoken to, every crematory owner in the world would not be spending fifty dollars to $100,000 on a retort, on filters, on fuel oil or natural gas to cremate a body. They would simply lay the cadaver <clears throat> on a slab in the mortuary put a lit cigarette on it, walk away, have a nice leisurely lunch, come back an hour or so later and say, look, pile of powder, brush it into the crematorium urn and give it to the next of kin. What is raked out of a crematorium retort is not dust and powder, but bone fragments, which are then put in a cremulator and ground to the proverbial powder and dust that is given to the next of kin. Mm -hmm. So knowing what's involved in, cremous, in cremation science, Contrast that to Dr. Bentley and Mrs. Reeser and many other cases that we can discuss with you and your listeners tonight just belies common sense and raises so many profound questions about the phenomenon that we're discussing with you this evening. Well, you know, that's the other thing. When there's cremations involved, I mean, they put them in the cardboard box to, to shove them in there to cremate them. The box burns up. And then with these mm -hmm. things, nothing around them burns up. That's what's creepy right. about it. Adding to the creepy factor, we have three cases in our database in which clothing is said to have survived the body itself burning to what looks like uh, uh, white ashen wood twigs mm -hmm. that would have burned up in a fireplace. Now, how, how can a body, which is mostly water, 70 to 75% water, burn itself to powder inside clothing that itself doesn't ignite? Well, it, it, that's what makes it so creepy, you know. And the, <laughs> the temperature, you know, the temperature that the body has to be at, even for, for cremation to burn. I mean, this has to be like ten to twenty times more hot. Mm -hmm. Compounding that, um, crematorium operators have to invest in filtration systems because burning flesh normally is not a very pleasant odor. No. Uh, many, many firemen who have who responded to fire fatalities have told us this. And yet in the Reeser case with Dr. Bentley as well, 
the first responders, the people who discover these amazing fire scenes, tell us that there's a, usually a sweet, redolent, perfume-like aroma at the fire scene, or in some cases, no odor at all. But never have they told us that they encountered the characteristic noxious stench of normally burned human flesh. That's another mystery and a problem and a conundrum for these combustion enigmas. Well, I can vouch, you know, for, for the smell of burning human flesh because I was a crime beat reporter for five years. So I, I had gone into these places behind the fire department. And yeah, it's just, it can zip your nostrils. You can't get rid of that smell no matter what you do. It has to wear off after a while. Um, and when you talk about that sweet smell, that sweet smell, I think I know what you're talking about because taking care of my, my elderly parents and they have, and they both have diabetes and things wrong with them. That smell comes that smell up. Comes up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a real odd smell. Yeah, does it smell like acetone? Yes, yes. Okay. There, there's a professor in England, Brian Fort, who postulates a very imaginative theory, theory, and we give him credit for this, that uh, a large amount of acetone formed in a human body might be the causative mechanism to explain Dr. Bentley and Mary Reeser and other cases mm -hmm. like them. The problem with his experiment is that in order for him to sustain combustion, he requires a concentration of at least 40% acetone in the body. And we don't see any way that that can be achieved while, while the person would still be alive. Um, so acetone may play a small role, but in our view, at least certainly right. not the right. precise mechanism by which the, these amazing SHC cases can happen. In all this time studying this stuff, so I mean, science is baffled, right? I mean, that, that, that's what the bottom line is. They don't know what causes it. Not only to our knowledge do they not know what causes it, they're not even wanting to look at the evidence that we have pulled together. This is one of the frustrations for us, and it's also one of the psychological <laughs> amusing aspects of, of, our, of our research into this phenomenon. Um, while we have attempted to elicit the assistance of fire professionals, forensic ex you know, experts and so on. Um, these are the people who have spent a lifetime studying fire science, and in many cases, the effects of fire on the human body. And we would expect them to be able to provide to us some cogent, rational, sane answers, or at least take a professional interest if they don't have the answers themselves. What we find, however, repeatedly is a, a reluctance or an outright refusal to look at the data that we've amassed in our many years of researching the phenomenon worldwide. Um, one senior fire investigator in the city of Philadelphia, after we had sat down with a local fire chief and gone over with great detail the 12 photographs of an amazing fire fatality that he was personally involved with uh, that happened to Helen Conway here in Pennsylvania in 1964. After having met with him and going over the timeline of that remarkable case in which she had burned from the time she was known to be alive until the fire department arrived to a fire scene where there was no fire to put out was six minutes. Having documented that time frame and then going to Philadelphia to meet with a senior fire investigator there and said, we put on his desk photographs of Dr. Bentley that we just showed your listeners, the photograph of um, Helen Conway, which consisted of two lower legs propped up against her chair. Beyond the kneecaps of Helen Conway was basically a, a, an amorphous pile of human rubble. Her left forearm had burned to the bone. In one of the photographs, you can see a charm bracelet that's still hanging from her exposed bone. Um, 
no odor of burned flesh at that fire scene. To the Philadelphia fire investigator, we said, these are the cases that we're looking at. We know the provenance of these photographs. They are not Photoshopped hoaxes. These represent real historical fire scenes. You're the expert, sir. You tell us how you would explain these. What would you do if you were called to a fire and this is what you encountered? His response to us, we shall never forget, quote unquote, I'd go out, get drunk and forget about it. Wow. At which point we were, we were told to pack up our photographs, pack up our notes in the attache case. And he literally escorted us out of his office, down the hallway, down the elevator, into the sidewalk. See, you answered Just, my question because I was thinking, you know, if somebody starts to burn or a fire starts and maybe they're getting burned, you're going to get up, you're going to call the fire department, you know, to get mm -hmm. them out. But see, from but what you just said, that answered my question because <laughs> it obviously happened so fast, there's no time to get up yeah. or anything. Yeah. I, again, the debunkers of SHC say, well, these people are elderly, they're sedentary, they have ambulatory difficulties, maybe they were drinking, they dropped a cigarette on themselves, they fell asleep and slowly emulated by the human wick effect for many okay. hours. But with the Conway case, we have a time frame that is locked down to six minutes maximum. Um, no fire official that we have interviewed anywhere in the world and have shown this case to can explain the amount of destruction that occurred to her by an apparent fire mm -hmm. in a in a duration that is at most six minutes. And plus, you know, with that kind of heat, that kind of flame coming off, it would tend to burn other stuff, and it doesn't do that. It just takes out the body. It, it should. If we're, if we're thinking in terms of an oxidizing fire phenomenon or fire process, yes, we should expect to see a tremendous amount of radiant heat burning stacks of newspaper nearby, um, distorting plastic on slip covers on a sofa that is literally inches away from where the body incinerates. We don't find that kind of evidence. There's a case that we discovered in Lincolnshire, England, um, several years ago during one of our research trips. A number of odd fires attracted us to this particular area of, of the UK. And we sat down with the county fire brigade commander and said, this is who we are. This is what brought us to your jurisdiction. Might there be other cases that fit the definition of SHC that happened during your watch? And Senton's first thought was, nope, I don't recall anything. But then he got really pensive and we could see the mental gears turning around and he sat back up and said larry now that i thought about it a little more a couple years ago we did have this fire that seems to fit everything that you're looking for it happened to an, a hermit who was living in a tinderbox of an environment had oil soaked newspaper as window glass in his home this neighbor said that he had not been seen for a couple of days so they called the fire department the police department and said you know find him. We, we haven't seen him. Maybe something happened inside. Maybe he died inside his house. The officials walked in, walked out, said he's not here. The neighbor said he's got to be there because we've not seen him outdoors for two days. Uh -huh. Fire officials went back in the house and finally realized that between the stacks of newspapers that were piled up in the old man's home uh -huh. was a pile of ash on the floor between those stacks of newspapers. And they had literally been walking through the remnants of the old hermit's body. So a human body was capable of incinerating itself to powder between stacks of newspaper that themselves did not ignite. This just belies 
everything that should happen in a fatal fire scene and makes our research both intriguing and fascinating and also problematic. That is, I mean, it's just a, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, none of it makes any sense that this should be happening. Now, when you talk about the ages of, the, of these people that are being affected by this, and I know this is to talk about the elderly, and I got to worry about myself, at least I don't drink alcohol. But, because um, <laughs> I'm behind the other all the time. But, uh, but you, know, uh, you know, has there been a case for a younger person has had this happen, or is it mainly the elderly? Statistically, um, this is what we say statistically based on our research. As we said earlier, it was once believed that all victims of this phenomenon were elderly female drunkards living alone, either in France or in Germany. That is clearly not the case. Those statistics can be updated. Uh -huh. um, in terms of gender, 50% of our victims are female, 47% are male, and history simply doesn't tell us the gender for the remaining 3%. So. Uh -huh. Being female or being male is not going to help or benefit you to avoid this phenomenon, rare though that it is. In terms of age, um, demographically, clearly the, the elderly are more prone to surprise us. Um, bodies tend to break down with time and with age. However, um, having said that, the youngest case in our database is a six week old toddler in a crib we're dealing with if the if the account that we have is historically correct either shc of a six-week-old baby or spontaneous combustion of the bedding material that then killed the child mm -hmm. we have a if memory serves a four-year-old chinese boy who was under observation by a team of physicians who would spontaneously ignite parts of his body and surrounding materials um, we have the Kirby girls, age four and five in England. This is a very, very bizarre case. We don't often talk about this on, on, on the media, but you guys are gonna get this tip off. All right, in, in, in the late 1800s, the Kirby's were living a mile apart. Um, the, the, the parents had separated and they had two, two daughters, Alice and I forget the last name of the other girl at the moment. One, one Kirby girl was four, one was five. One was living with the mother at the time, one was living with the father a mile away. Long story short, according to the local newspaper records and officials at the time, and indeed we were able to visit one of the two houses in which the event occurred, both young children ignited under mysterious, unexplained circumstances simultaneously one mile apart. Both were, both were taken to the hospital in the same um, ambulance, and both succumbed to their burn injuries later in the day. Wow. But that makes sense. Because Does that twins, make sense? Right? Right? Yeah. Twins, no, they, right? they, they, they were not twins. They okay. were siblings okay. one, one year apart. Um, wow. in, in terms of conventional fire science, it makes uh -huh. zero sense. In terms of something more esoteric, karmic, um, metaphysical, um, if these were split souls who were sharing a common um, fate, if you will, okay. then yes, it could make sense. But we're getting into esoterics that, let's face it, fire scientists and firefighters are not prone to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Because my thought is, because it's family, you know, whatever their genetic makeup is, is, it, it, it might have caused this to happen to both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. there, there, there's so much. There are so many aspects to look at um, in investigating this phenomenon. There's, there's weather. There's climate. There's 
cosmic factors. Um, there are earth energies. There are things like microwaves, biochemistry, bioelectricity, all things that need to be looked at in our view as a researcher to try to explain how some of these fires can be better explained than by the wick effect, which simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, when you find these cases, how, how do you go about researching and everything to find them? Ah, interesting question. Um, first, we had to find the case. That in itself is incredibly difficult. Um, in the Bentley case, for example, we have the death certificate for Dr. Bentley. Officially, Dr. Bentley died by asphyxiation with 90% burning to the body over a period of about one half hour. There is no way to substantiate any of those claims because first, in order to determine asphyxiation, what does a coroner or medical examiner need? Needs esophagus, trachea, or lungs. Uh -huh. None of those things existed at the Bentley fire scene. As far as duration, nobody knows. Um, as far as 90% burning of the body, as the deputy coroner, John Deck, told us as we sat down with him to discuss his involvement in the case, he finally concluded that it was more like 99% burning of the body. But if the only thing that we had was a newspaper clip from Dr. Bentley's front page um, obit in uh, 1966, that said he, his body was charred and the death certificate said death by asphyxiation, we would think it's a normal fire fatality, drop cigarette probably, and um, no mystery, nothing to investigate. Only when we got the photograph, and it was not easy to obtain, we were fortunate to get it from the photographer, um, could we ascertain the correct details and the true nature of Dr. Bentley's amazing baffling burning. Um, when we hear about a fire that has hints of something unusual about it, we'll call the local fire department. Oftentimes we get, yep, it's it can be explained conventionally. That's fine. We put that case aside. Um, another case that comes to mind happened in 1986 in upstate New York to um, George Mott, a retired firefighter. We got wind of the case uh, from a local resident who was a colleague of ours up in that part of the country. He said, Larry, here's a case I just heard about up here in the local news that might be of interest to you. We made some phone calls. It proved to be incredibly of interest to us. Our first call was to the um, local emergency fire director, um, Tony Moret. Tony said, I know about your work, Larry. We've got one that's gonna be really of interest to you. Come on and help us because I can't figure this one out. We made two trips to upstate New York to investigate the case of George Mott. Retired firefighter, long story short, burned himself to his bed, through the flooring below the bed, to a pile of powder in the crawl space below, leaving behind on the bed half of one leg and at the other end of the mattress, um, a head that was said by the local firefighters who knew him that had shrunken in size. So we have parallels again with Dr. Bentley and with Mary Reeser. Again, we were at that fire scene. We could stand in George Mott's bedroom and touch the ceiling with our upraised hand. The ceiling was wallpapered, not a scorch mark on the ceiling. This fire, this fire was contained to George Mott. And in our view, as in, in the other cases that we've shared with you so far in detail with Bentley and Mott and Reeser, he burned down to his bed. He did not burn up, he burned down. Um, again, no burn, no odor of burned flesh at the environment, an incredibly complex fire scene.
um, plastic objects throughout Mr. Mott's tinderbox of a home, but roughly 20 by 40 feet in size, had melted in the living room, in the kitchen, in the bathroom. Um, again, which makes no sense, log logically makes no sense to a firefighter, but this is what evidence was presented to us as an investigator. We had the privilege of speaking to Mr. Mott's family. They, they looked at our research, they looked at the evidence, they spoke with um, the local investigators up there and everybody, almost everybody we spoke to, certainly the family members concluded that by whatever means it happened, their family member had died by spontaneous human combustion. Um, so, so complete was the incineration that um, when we sat down with the um, coroner, he told us that with the exception of the leg, um, everything that was shoveled out of the crawl space below and including his head had, could be put in a shoebox. Now, a normal human head, if it didn't shrink, cannot be put in a normal sized shoebox. So that's mm -hmm. further evidence that once again, we have a shrunken head um, in these remarkable fire scenes, which again, belies everything that should happen at a normal fatal fire. So is this stuff, um, so are reports of this still coming in now? Because I mean, you don't see it in the Most of the reports tend to be, at least they used to be, um, newspaper tabloid fodder. Um, the Wicklow Road News would regularly headline a mysterious fire event that when we pursued it, turned out to be a hoax. Ironically, um, the Wicklow Road News um, reported the Dr. Ben, um, the George Mott case in absolute 100% accuracy. But we already knew that because we'd already investigated the case and we knew that they were doing accurate reporting this time. How that happened we, is, is another mystery of the subject. Um, the most recent case that we stake our reputation on as an investigator and, and the conclusions that we have derived from it happened in Oklahoma in 2013 to a gentleman named Danny Van Zandt. Again, a very localized fire scene, completely mystified the local firefighters and local fire investigators. As um, Fire Chief Russell told us, this fire began in and ended at the body. Wow. Mr. Van Zandt. Um, his upper torso from the shoulders up to the head and not much else left his, left behind his heart that had burned through the floor. Um, but the other internal organs had disappeared. Um, the local sheriff for the county in Sequoia County at the time um, was certainly willing to consider spontaneous human combustion because he knew about our research. He knew about other cases that looked like this case that now happened in his jurisdiction. Not surprisingly, the sheriff took a lot of grief online, um, a lot of criticism, a lot of rebuking. Uh, what those who criticized the sheriff did not know was that before the sheriff was elected to Sequoia County in that office, he had spent 20 years as an arson investigator. So the sheriff knew what to expect at a conventional fatal fire scene. Mm -hmm. And the fire scene that he encountered with Danny Van Zant was by any means quite unconventional. And he was willing, as we said, to consider SHC as a viable explanation. Now, when you look at these files, because you know, you've gone over, you know, the things about the alcohol and all that, what do you see that might be a, 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 the same factor happening in all the cases or is there nothing? 
If there was a common factor to most of the cases that we've been able to document both personally and through archival research that goes back hundreds of years, it either has not been recorded or it has eluded our ability to identify it. We have been unable to find any commonality to these hundreds of cases other than that, that they involve a human being. Um, as we said, most are elderly, but they can be very young. Some are drunkards as with Danny, well, I'm not gonna say Danny Van Zandt was a drunkard, but he consumed a <laughs> tremendous amount of alcohol. We were told about 30 cans of beer a day, uh, which is beyond our comprehension, wow. but uh, you know, it's amazing. Um, but others are teetotalers. Um, some are smokers, others are not. Um, so there's, some are overweight, some are thin, uh, some are active, some are sedentary. Um, we don't see a common factor, which, which makes our research all the more difficult. One of our critics um, said, Larry, your problem is that you have cases that are all over the place. Mm -hmm. And a reaction was, well, why should that be a requisite for this phenomenon to begin with? I mean, human beings are as different as snowflakes. Um, why, why do all victims of SHC have to be identically alike in order for you to accept the phenomenon? Look at the evidence, look at the data, and deal with the factual nature of the material that we've been able to uncover in our years of research. Then make a statement, but don't expect all, all victims to be identically alike. There's no reason for that. And indeed, their history proves that that is not the case. Now, let's, go about, let's talk about your research. And doing this research, how many cases have you been able to come up with? Our database right now involves about 500 examples, um, ranging from fatalities like Mary Reeser, Helen Conway, Dr. Bentley, George Mott, uh, to the other extreme that is truly spontaneous human combustion in which the body was smoke or blister or third degree, even fourth degree burn, and yet the people survive and can tell us about wow. what it was like to experience this phenomenon. Uh, the most graphic, the most complete, the most serious survivor case that we have yet encountered happened in 1974, if memory serves, to Jack Angel. He was a traveling salesman living and working out of um, a motorhome in, in Savannah, Georgia at the time. He went to sleep in his motorhome one night, expecting to meet with a client the following day. He overslept, missed his appointment. When Mr. Angel did awaken, he realized that his right forearm had burned black, charred to the bone while he slept. He experienced at that time, no pain. Got up, dressed, exited the motorhome, entered the Ramada Inn where he had parked overnight and lost consciousness. When he regained consciousness, he found himself in the, in the Savannah Memorial Hospital, surrounded by a team of physicians wondering among themselves and pondering how the patient could have burned himself to this extent and not feel any pain, among other things. The burn injury to Jack's forearm was so severe that he elected to have it amputated just below the elbow. He consulted with a team of liability attorneys in the Atlanta area, two of the best in the, in the town at that time, anticipating filing a lawsuit against the manufacturer of the motorhome for an electrical fault, a plumbing fault, something that would have caused the burns externally. Mm -hmm. They had the motorhome torn down to the wheelbase and could find no external mechanical means by which Jack Angel's burns could be caused. 
lightning was ruled out, foul play was ruled out, all that kind of logical stuff was thrown out the window. They could not meet the burden of proof and withdrew the case from court. We had the medical records of Jack's treatment. The attending physicians diagnosed his injuries as quote unquote, internal in origin. We have no way to interpret that statement other than that he burned from the inside out, which would be spontaneous combustion. Uh And he lived Uh to tell the remarkable tale. Well, you know, the same with cocaine, though. I mean, mean, if we get a deep enough cut cut on our arms or or other places, places, there's no pain there. there. Mm. So if he did burn from the inside out, then that's maybe why he didn't feel that pain. Because it was a deep, you know, it was a deep issue in in his tissue. It it may be we we have no explanation for that in the in, in the instance of Jack Angel he had other internal injuries to his body at that time a disc in his ver- in his vertebrae had had partially fused together he had other burn type injuries to his groin and his chest um, but whatever the energy was it came from within his body and burned outward to the surface. Can you share a couple others like that with us? You know the people that have lived to tell talk about it. Sure. Uh, first, what comes to mind, Peter Jones um, from California, you're part of the country. Yeah. In 1980, was sitting on the edge of his bed, getting ready for work that day, putting on his boots and his, his work clothes. His wife, Barbara, was in bed beside him when suddenly Mr. Jones became engulfed in plumes of whitish gray smoke. And Barbara was nonplussed, started patting her husband on the back, on the groin, on the thighs to put out the fire that was causing this voluminous amount of smoke. When the smoke dissipated, they both looked at each other and said, what the hell happened here? Obviously, neither of them had explanation. Uh, They looked under the bed. They looked for any source of external ignition that would have caused this amount of smoke that engulfed Peter's body, could find nothing. Mm Peter's a remarkable individual, able to remain calm under the most extraordinary of circumstances. He went about his work that day. Driving home in the afternoon, he stopped at a railroad grade crossing alone in his car, waiting for the train to go by, when for the second time in that remarkable day in his life, his body once again produced smoke, this time coming from his sleeve down his right forearm. Um, Peter told us that he, After the smoke stopped, he opened the window, bedded the smoke, and went home and never told his wife Barbara about the second incident until both of them watching a television program that we did for That's Incredible on ABC in 1981 that brought to the world's attention the remarkable case of Dr. Bentley. As they were watching the program, Peter turned to his wife Barbara and said, Barb, do you remember what happened to me back in um, October when we were both in bed? And she said, how the hell could I forget it? He said, what happened to me a second time that day? Um, so he's a double survivor. We have another double survivor, um, according to his information to us, uh, Frank Baker. This happened to, uh, to him in 1975 in upstate Vermont. Um, we did his case and the Van Zandt case for a program for the Science Channel called The Unexplained Files. And coincidentally, for your listeners, um, that program is probably the single most rebroadcast program on Science Channel. They're going to rerun it again this coming Friday, September 15th at 4 to 5 a.m. Eastern Time. So do the time conversion. Um, You can watch it live. It's probably available also somewhere online. Um, Mr. Baker's case was um, witnessed 
by a friend of his in which his body twice um, burst forth in what appeared to be fire. Um, both times was successfully extinguished. Uh, Mr. Baker is the recipient of the Purple Heart. He has no reason in our view to make up this story. It fits with other survival cases. Uh, third one that comes to mind is Kay Fletcher. She was a, an Ohio housewife who, if memory serves, in 1986, was finishing up the breakfast dishes one Sunday morning when she felt a low heat rising up the back to her left shoulder. She turned to look and, and noticed smoke coming up her left shoulder. She screamed. Her husband, Mike, was nearby, came in, thinking her clothes had somehow caught fire and perhaps a hot stove burner. Ripped off her outer garments, the smoking persisted. Ripped off her undergarments, the smoking persisted. Kay ended up with a probably a pretty severe first-degree burn on her shoulder, redding of the skin. By the time that they she got to her physician, the doctor, you know, had nothing to treat and was just mystified by the story that that uh, the Fletchers had to tell him. Um, what causes the body to smoke, what causes the body to blister is an ongoing mystery as well. Now, does it, that, like in her case, does she feel anything? Does she feel the rise of blood pressure or anything like that? She told us nothing like that. Um, her only physical sensation, she told us, was was a low heat, uh, as if somebody had been perhaps holding a an electric radiator several inches away from her back. And she felt that heat moving up from the middle of her back to her upper shoulder, at which point the smoking began. Um, but a first degree burn is not a serious burn injury. Um, right. Second degree burn would be blistering of the skin. Uh, we have that cases like that. In fact, that happened to us um, once upon several years ago. Um, third degree burn would maybe be what Jack Angel experienced, perhaps bordering on fourth degree burn even. Um, but in the classic cases of what we call sudden human cremation, we are way beyond any official burn category. We need to create a new burn injury category for, for cases like Mary Reeser and Dr. Bentley and George Mott. Yeah, you mentioned a couple, a couple of seconds ago about you guys having an experience. Can you talk about that? Uh, we will. Um, this is almost an exclusive to you guys. Uh, we were motorcycling many years ago, um, ended the day, got off the bike, parked it, went in and went to suck our body in a tub and looked down and we saw two half dollar sized blisters on the back of our forearms um, filled with moisture, filled with you know liquid, very puffy, very spongy. Um, we had not it looked as, somebody, as though someone had laid a hot pipe across our forearms, uh, just above the wrist. Um, no pain, mm -hmm. no, uh, no contact with any kind of an external nearby heat agent. Um, so, SHC. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. it's fascinating. You know, to hear these stories about these people that that's happened to and survived, because yeah. you're so used to seeing the stories of the people that don't survive. Right, and this is a part of their research that are that are that the debunkers, the naysayers, our critics really don't want to address, other than, other than to say, well, these people simply are making up these stories for whatever purpose they would have in mind. Um, many of the stories we have not. Well, before the book came out, we did not publicize the survivor's stories. We kept this information very confidential so that if somebody made up something, we would probably be able to identify this as something based on a previous story that had been out in the public. Um, 
there, there's a common factor to so many of these cases. Um, the witness cases usually involve um, the victim being enveloped in a bright electric blue colored light, uh, which again belies normal oxidation oxidation type fire phenomena, mm -hmm. indicating either an energy other than um, burning carbon or a very high temperature oxidizing type of fire. Um, we have a witness case that involves a professional firefighter and his crew. Uh, this comes from England, uh, suburb of London, Lamberth, where bystanders noticed a lurid glow in a tenement building. They alerted the fire department that responded within minutes. And what fire commander Stacy and his crew found was the body of Robert Bailey, a derelict, already dead, lying on a staircase in the tenement building. But from his abdomen was jetting a bright electric blue colored flame, jetting with force, said Jack Stacy to us, that required the um, application of the contents of several fire extinguishers into the gut of Mr. Bailey to extinguish that blaze. They looked for an external ignition source, could find none in the tenement building. Jack Stacy's conclusion to us as an eyewitness and a professional firefighter was that Mr. Bailey experienced spontaneous human combustion. Now, in your opinion, after doing all this research on this stuff, what do you think? I know we kind of talked about this earlier, but I'm talking your opinion, you know, what do you think is going on here? What we think going on here is a bona fide, natural, physiological, human, and scientific mystery. Mm -hmm. It cannot be explained by the Wick effect, uh, which leads us to posit all kinds of other possibilities that, that might explain some, but not all of these cases. As we said earlier, we do not believe there's a single causative mechanism that can explain the wide variety of the cases that we've been able to document throughout history. That goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. We look at biochemistry, uh, we look at anything that could affect the hypothalamus in the body, that's the temperatures, basically the temperatures thermostat that would cause it to go into overdrive, so to speak. Um, we have medical documentation of body temperatures reaching 147 degrees Fahrenheit, 171 degrees Fahrenheit, and those people survived. Um, this goes way beyond the Guinness Book of World Records for temperature sure. survivor. Um, we look at biochemistry, we look at bioelectricity. We think that many of these fires can be much better explained as an electrical phenomenon rather than a, an oxidizing type of combustion. We look at plasma, we look at ball lightning, we look at um, subatomic physics. We've investigated a possible geographic or geotelluric aspect to many of these fires. As we said what earlier, what happened um, that took us to Lincolnshire to discover that case of the hermit who burned himself to powder between stacks of unburned newspaper was that many of the cases that we have in the United Kingdom and plotted them on a map, we found that more than 80% of anomalous fires that we've been able to identify in the UK can be connected by straight alignments, sometimes connecting perhaps as many as a dozen cases of unusual, inexplicable fires over a length of several hundred miles. So it seems to us that in some cases, being in the wrong place at the wrong time can lead to an inflammatory disaster. 
either to a person or to a person's property. That's incredible. And to think like like in the case of that gentleman, you know, those two gentlemen with the wife, I mean, right there watching. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. It's just, it's just it's, it goes way over the head to think about it. It does indeed. Um, which again brings up the psychology of, of this phenomenon. Why, why people who have devoted their professional careers to fire science are so adverse to looking at this data that we've collected over the decades. Um, when we went down to the um, National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, wrapping up our research before publication of Ablaze, we had the opportunity to meet with the three, or try to meet with the three senior instructors on duty that day. One of whom, when we handed or tried to hand them photographs, said, "Yeah, I, I've heard about this, but I'm really not interested." And walked away. The second gentleman we approached, literally, and we shall never forget this image. He spun on his heels and ran away from us down the hall. I don't want to see this. That incident attracted the attention of the gentleman who turned out to be the third instructor that day. He came over to us, looked at the photographs and said, we don't have a clue. Come into my office, sit down and tell me everything you know, which we were happy to do. Um, not that we could tell him everything you knew at the time. There just wasn't time to do that. But to go from the extreme of, I don't want to look at this period to I'm open because we don't have an understanding at all about how to explain this. It's just part of the psychology that that has puzzled us, has baffled us, has perplexed us, and frankly, has frustrated us. Um, we're asking the experts in the field to help us look at our data and come to a reasonable explanation as to how these cases can be explained and thereby offer help to prevent future fatalities from occurring. If we can find situations, common factors, um, criteria that can hint at a forthcoming SHC event, mm -hmm. we may be able to take steps to prevent that from happening to that individual. Well, my, my thought I just had was that, is science on board with this, you know, looking into all this? Or is this one of those things that happens so random that they're just like, ah, you know, this is what we see arise away. Our experience has been that up to this point, science is not open to uh, considering the evidence and the data. They are quite adverse to it. Um, it's easier to call it pseudoscience, superstition. Um, one medical examiner in Cuyahoga County, Dr. Lester Adelson, now transitioned. Um, we had a long conversation with him. Um, he said that the photographs of Mary Reeser and Dr. Bentley and Helen Conway were hoaxes. We said, on what basis do you determine these photographs to be hoaxes? Because as we said, we know the providence of the photographs. We know who took the photographs. We know the circumstances under which these photographs were taken. Why do you call them hoaxes? His response, because bodies don't burn this way. Therefore, these photographs can exist as historical documents because they can't. It's impossible. Um, we asked Dr. Adelson then, well, have you ever been to a scene of what history has called spontaneous human combustion, sudden human cremation. No, he had not. But nonetheless, he can argue from authority that even though he's never investigated a case, he knows nothing about the history of the photographs that he looked at, he can still ascertain and determine categorically, unequivocally that there's nothing here, it has to be a hoax because as he said, 
bodies don't burn this way. Well, bodies do burn this way. We are not making up the facts, unlike some of our critics who do. Um, We're not Photoshopping these images. These are real historical pieces of evidence that speak to something that is nonsensical, Mm -hmm. is outrageous, is problematic, is clearly a combustion conundrum, and yet it happens. So let's Mm -hmm. let's investigate. Let's learn something new by looking at the evidence of these remarkably rare and yet utterly fascinating cases of human incineration and survival. Now, knowing that you do this research, uh, like like you kind of described how you do the research, do you have people coming to you that know the research you're doing and they they, they, they know of a case or something that you may not know of? Yeah, that, that is certainly one way that we learn about the cases. That's how we learned about the uh, the case of George Mott in upstate New York. A colleague of ours, um, Joe Zazinski, dipped us off to that case, for which we were very, very grateful. Um, we are regarded around the world probably as the foremost advocate for spontaneous human combustion, uh, which in the minds of many makes us the world's greatest fool. Um, so we rely on people who know about our research and who take it seriously to contact us with leads, possibilities that need follow-up. Um, on a recent program that we did, we got a, a connection from a lady, again in California, your neck of the country, um, who said she was a survivor of SHC. Oh, great. Okay, we need some more information. She provided us photographs that showed um, most of the epidermis on her body was covered with what we would characterize as second degree burn. Our question follow up to her was, um, have you ever heard of or did your attending physicians diagnose you as a case of Stevens-Johnson syndrome or TENS, toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome? And she said, yes. Now, this is interesting because Stevens-Johnson syndrome is a recognized medical condition in which certain people's bodies have a burn reaction to certain drug medication. So mainstream medicine will recognize SHC, but under a different terminology, TENS or Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So this lady in California was a survivor, we believe. And in this case, medicine has been able to provide her a, a, an acceptable label for her condition. But why her body and the bodies of a few other individuals have this incredible burn-like response to a specific medication is still, to our knowledge, a medical mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should people be worried about this happening should, to them? Should we be worried personally? Yeah. Should, we, yeah, should, should we be stressed out over this? Oh, in, 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 in general, no. As I said, this is extraordinarily rare. Um, having said that, we will also add that we know there are cases that we have not yet been able to identify mm-hmm. and document. So it's not as rare as statistics would suggest, but nonetheless, given that we've been able to identify only about 500 cases now mm-hmm. that span thousands of years, given how many people have been alive in that time, divided into 500, the odds are infinitesimally small. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. not much to worry about, but again, every once in a while, somebody hits the uh, Powerball lottery, don't they? Yes, yes. 
So you mentioned that case in 2013. Has, has there been anything recent? That's, that's what I'm wondering because, you know, it seems like you don't, you don't hear the reports of these things on the anymore. Yeah. Um, that's because mainstream medicine, mainstream media has pretty much bought the explanation that these people burn up in their own body fat over long periods of time at low temperature and nothing here to see. As, as we said, the most recent case that we've had the privilege to get involved with and, and look at in detail was from 2013. We are very cautious or we try to be very cautious. Um, we want our research to be credible. So we're not making up facts of which we've been accused. We're not mystery mongering of which we've been accused. Um, if there was a case that comes to our attention, uh, we were travel the country, we were travel the world to, to document it if need be, um, if it shows promise. Um, but we're not, we're not wanting to speculate without good solid research and factual data. Um, better let the case open. Um, the case from, from Lambert, London was an open verdict. We have no problem with open verdict cases. That's honest. Mm -hmm. Just don't uh, do what was done with Dr. Bentley and say that he died by asphyxiation because um, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not truthful. So what do you say to people out there that are fascinated by this and want to start researching it? Look us up on the internet. <laughs> Give us a phone call. Look at the research that we've done. If you find cases um, that parallel what we have done and documented, please get in touch with us. The more information, the more data that all of us have, um, the closer will be the time and the opportunity to understand better how these events happen. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, as we said earlier, be able to prevent them from happening in the future. Um, lots of people are looking at UFOs or UAPs. Uh, lots of people are roaming the woods looking at cryptids. Uh, not too many people to our knowledge are, are delving into fire phenomena, into pyro phenomena. So this is a niche that we've kind of happenstance carved out for ourselves. It's been a fascinating um, excursion, lots of adventure. It's been fun to look at some of these cases, um, to deal with the psychology of some of the witnesses or, or the naysayers. Um, all we ask is that people be honest with us, be honest with the data, look at the evidence as it presents itself, and um, go on from there. And for people that people that pick up your book or buy your book, how, how, how many cases do you have in that book that they can see? Uh, let's see. A Blaze was published in 1995. It probably contains about 350 to 400 cases. Again, some are in great detail. Uh, we devote a full chapter to Mary Weezer, a full chapter to Dr. Bentley, a full chapter to Helen Conway, a full chapter to George Mott. Um, other cases may be simply a paragraph or a few mm -hmm. sentences. Uh, back in the 17 and early 1800s, in most cases, the, the fires were not given great attention and detail. Uh, we do have one case from the 1820s um, happened again in England. Uh, the victim was Jane Lapiter. A Dr. Newell took a personal and professional interest in that case, and we we have the um, we found the original documentation and obscure medical text from the Midlands in England. Um, Dr. Newell devoted two full pages to describing in great detail uh, what was witnessed at the fire scene of of Jane Lapiter. Um, that stands out as the most 
documented detailed case that we recall having discovered until we found out about Dr. Bentley's death in 1975. Um, if we had more information about the cases from these old, old cases, we maybe would be much better able to explain um, and solve the mystery that underlies this entire phenomenon. Absolutely. Larry, it's always great to have you on. I appreciate you coming on. I would love to have you on again in the future. It's always fascinating. It's a fascinating subject. You treat it well. You honor us with your interest and attention and, and personal capacity. Um, happy to do it a third time with you. Thank you, Charlotte. Absolutely. All right. You have a great rest of your evening, sir. Thank you. Likewise. Blessings. Good night. Bye-bye. Right, Good night. Okay. It's always so fascinating to have him on. I mean, the stuff terrifies me. And I know a lot of my friends think that, too. So I'll, I'll give you his contact information when you get the book. You know, so you can read that. Um, tomorrow, uh, it's going to be a little different. We're going to be going on at 7.30 p.m. Pacific uh, to accommodate our guests who's getting off work and should be home by 7 p.m. I'll give her a cool, cool down. And Bender's going to be with us. We're going to be talking about haunted hospitals and stuff like and things like that. I was, uh, when I was taking care of my mother at Kaiser North over here, uh, my brother kind of let on that I was the ghost hunter. And... Uh, one day I happened to walk in there and you know, see my mom and about eight nurses cornered me and were, and were telling me about that section where, where they keep going. I'm not going to name it on the air because obviously it's a hospital, but there's a certain section where they where, where it's easier for them to house uh, the senior citizens with Alzheimer's and things like that. And it's very actively haunted. And it's one of these deals where there's this one particular room where the buzzer will go off to get the nurse's attention and there's nobody in the room, but there's a story that goes behind it. So Anne and I are going to be talking about the, that stuff. She actually was on, um, I believe, Haunted Hospitals. I think that's what the show is called, Haunted Hospitals. And so she did the sit on there talking about it because she is a medical worker. She, I think she's an x-ray tech. And so uh, if I'm wrong, she'll, she'll yell at me mom. But, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be interesting to talk with her about that. Anyway, thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Got a little bit of a late start, but that's okay. It's all good. Normal, normal stuff. Tech, 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 tech. All right. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of, you, five of your enemies. We're just looking at getting people to watch the show, you know. You might be in the house with somebody and you're saying, hey, come on over here. There's this little show we like, you know, that I like to watch. Just get you into it. The next thing you know, there's 10 people watching me. I don't know. I know people watch me over dinner. They put me on their big screen TVs. It's kind of cool. In fact, I, did, I was flipping through channels one day, and I had and I forgot that I had my phone set to um, show on the TV, and sure enough, I popped up, and I was like, ah, I turned everything off. This is how I am. But I want to thank you all, and again, we'll be on the air at 7.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow with, with uh, Medium and Bender. In the meantime, let me give you Larry's contact information and all that stuff. And hopefully he'll come back on for us because that is fascinating. So here we go. Okay, the website is parascience.com, all lowercase. And the book is A Blaze, Spontaneous Human Combustion by Larry E. Arnold. And that's available at Amazon or from his website. You can get the book. Anyway, thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. And 
Hope to see you all here tomorrow. And I'm putting out some TikTok stuff as well, some material for that uh, the next couple of days. So you guys check us out on TikTok. I know people are afraid of TikTok, but it's not as bad as people think it is. So if you haven't checked TikTok out, go check TikTok out. It's, it's pretty cool. And join my TikTok, California Haunts TikTok, because um, we can do subscriptions now. And that's what makes it kind of cool as well. We can do subscriptions now. And so I call you guys my boo crew. And that's what I'm calling it. And there's prizes involved with that. You get certain milestones for subscriptions. I'm going to offer prizes. We'll have drawings and things like that. So it's going to get fun. Karen Clark and I are going to be doing a lot more over there. And um, building up this presence and just chipping away at it and chipping away at it. All right. Well, that being said, uh, check out the meetup if you guys want to meditate. You know, it's, it's really relaxing for your systems to meditate. You, you might be having financial problems. You might be having, you know, marital problems or whatever. Love. Already kind of love problems. Meditation helps. Health problems. You, you can meditate for your health. So, uh, like I said earlier, it's going to be a twice a day now. We'll do, I'll be doing it at 3 p.m. Pacific or even 3.30 Pacific so that you guys on the East Coast can do it as well. So, uh, anyway, I will see you tomorrow, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. See ya.